Well, again, welcome everyone. We're in our uh, ongoing study of the gospel according to Mark, and um, we're in chapter 10. I think we'll probably finish that chapter, although I'm never quite certain with this group what we can ever finish. But remember one or two things here about um, this chapter particularly. Jesus is uh, on the move, and I say that because began the chapter with Mark telling us he left Galilee and was headed for Jerusalem. So, and I, I don't know if I'll do that. I'll do it maybe one more time. He, <clears throat> he follows the King's highway. Here's Galilee. He would have followed on the east side of the Jordan river. There was an international highway and he would have followed that. And then you might note if you're following this map, but as you go down the Jordan river, you cross right before you get to the Dead Sea is where they would cross over. And there's the city of Jericho. And then Jericho would be the road up to Jerusalem. Jericho is about oh, 300 feet below sea level, and Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. So that trek up to Jerusalem would have been an arduous trip, um, because obviously they would have walked it. So that's why Jane, uh, Jane, excuse me, that's why Mark says in verse 46, and they came to Jericho. So I just pointed out in the map, or if you're looking at the map. Jericho is just on the east side of the of the Jordan River, excuse me, the west side of the Jordan River, and it begins the trek up to to uh, to Jerusalem. And uh, and again, I, you, you may not be interested in this, but I'm just going to explain it to you anyway. At the time of Jesus, there were two Jerichos. There was the ancient city of Jericho, and then there is this Jericho that Herod built. And Herod, it says Herod the great, the one who was king when Jesus was born. But that was an incredibly, uh, for that time, incredibly modern city. Herod had an enormous palace there, um, lots of water that he brought in from the springs and oases around, because Jericho is literally on an oasis. But anyway, so that you have to understand that there are really two Jerichos. There's the city that Herod built, and there's the old city. They're about a mile apart, and so you would kind of enter one part of the city, the old city, and enter then the new city. And you keep hearing they're going to Jericho, and they're going to Jericho. And wait a minute, it's, it can be a little confusing. And so you just have to discern. Okay, they would have they would have entered they would have entered the old city of Jerusalem, which is about five miles from from uh, the Jordan River, and then the new city is about a mile south of that. I hope I didn't confuse you too much. But you got to remember that because of the way in which Mark talks about what they're doing. And he came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So they leave the old city and they're headed to the new city. That's all that means. And along the road, by the way, I want you to notice something. He also, Mark also tells us, and a great crowd. Now, the word great is mega. I mean, it's, it's a large crowd. Who are these people? These are the people from Galilee, and they're following Jesus because they're going to J Jerusalem for, in effect, the same reason he is, to, for the Passover, for all the holiday celebration, all that goes with that. And we have no idea how many, but the, the term he's using, it's a fairly large crowd of people. So they're following Jesus, and along the road is this man, Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus just means son of Timaeus. But anyway, he's a blind beggar sitting on the roadside, which was a very typical um, 
very typical, actually very strategic thing to do. There's going to be a lot of people passing by that roadside, particularly this time of the year. And so he is expecting, he's expecting people to give him gifts and because he's a beggar and so on. But notice, notice what he does in verse 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, now he's blind, so he can't see Jesus, but he hears either the crowds talking about him or he even hears Jesus. But anyway, he knows it's Jesus. And he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, this, for you and me, because we've read things like this in the Gospels over and over and over again, but you have no idea how extraordinary this is for a man to utter this. Jesus, son of David, that's a messianic title. So this blind beggar is affirming something that many, many people have rejected along the way. Jesus is the Messiah. And it's one of those, how did he know that? Now, obviously, he had heard the stories about Jesus. He had heard the stories about Jesus' teaching, and I'm sure his miracles and things like this. So Mark doesn't explain that to us. We don't know how, but somehow, in some way, he recognizes Jesus, and he screams, and that's really the word there. He screams, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The phrase son of David is used 10 times in the Gospel of Matthew. It's, it's the first time it's used in Mark, and we're nearing the end of the book. Because Mark is not written to Jews, Mark is written to the Gentiles. Mark's writing them to Rome. Matthew's written to the Jews, and it tried to prove that Jesus is the Davidic king, the, the Messiah. And so it's just extraordinary, guys, that he, this blind beggar is crying out a messianic title. Jesus, son of David, have mercy. And again, that represents something that he had enough of an understanding that he knew if his faith is strong, that Jesus would do something for him. And so he's asking for mercy. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. Now, what that basically means is a large crowd. Jesus has no doubt passed by him. In effect, go get him and bring him to me. And they called the blind man saying, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said, go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, I want to comment. I, I read, as you know, from the ESV translation, your faith has made you well. That little phrase, made you well, is one verb, sesoken. It is a participle for saved. Now, that... When you, when you understand that's really the word that's being translated here, it has all kinds of implications. Because it's going to tell us in the next statement that he immediately can recover sight. He, he can see now. But it's, it's interesting that Jesus Christ uses that term, your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you well. But at two levels. He's made you well, it's made you well in that you are going to see, but it's also made you well 
made you well spiritually. And so, it, it, guys, this is, this is an intriguing idea here that we, we see when we understand what word is being translated. And that word, it's the, the simple verb is sozo, which means to be saved. It's one of the common words in the New Testament for saved is a verb. But made you well, it's, it's, it's a participle uh, type uh, of verb. And it's the idea that you, your faith has made you physically well, has saved you physically, but your faith has also saved you spiritually from judgment and damnation. So it's, it's just, it's really fascinating when I was studying for this, uh, which I studied for this a while ago, but I reviewed it again on Monday because of my study day. And I looked it up again. I wanted to make sure that what my notes said was accurate. <laughs> Did I really write that down correctly? Because it struck me. And it's just, it's one of those things, Jesus chooses a term that has different levels of meaning because save can just mean deliver. You're saved from something, you're delivered from something. You, Bill was telling me he almost had an accident here coming to class and the Lord delivered him. I think we could say that. Yeah, I didn't do with the eternal salvation, but the Lord delivered him from having a, well, another serious accident. So, oh my, <laughs> it's a double delivery there. So, it's just, it's, I, I don't want to elaborate on it, but you'll notice one other thing. It's the next uh, clause, and immediately he recovered it. Immediately is Mark's favorite word, 41 times in the book, and followed him on the way. On the way where? To Jerusalem. So what we should infer from this, and correctly, I think that's exactly what Mark is telling us. This man, this blind beggar who now can see, joined the throngs of crowds headed up to Jerusalem. And so again, this, this in effect is saying this man has experienced salvation at the two levels we briefly talked about, and now he's a disciple of Jesus. Now, we don't know anything more about him. We, we don't, we don't, there's nothing that tracks his development through the New Testament. So it's just another one of those miracles that has lots of questions, lots of levels of interest, but this man has changed. And now he's a follower of Jesus. And so he will be, I, I am absolutely certain of this, he will be among the crowd from the next chapter, which is a triumphal entry of Jesus in Jerusalem. He will be among the crowd that's crying to Jesus, Hosanna, son of David. And so it's just, here's a man who's transformed. And the key is his faith. He had enough faith to say, yell out, really, yell what he was saying. And then faith that Jesus could do what he was asking him to do. All right, so it's just a wonder. By the way, this is the last miracle recorded in Mark. There'll be no more miracles. Now the focus is on Passion Week, and then of course the end of the the end of the book in chapter sixteen. All right, any questions here in the room or in in, uh, in the group uh, online? <clears throat> it's a very familiar miracle, but I wanted to stress the one nuance, particularly about Christ's response, and I think we. We're able to successfully do it. I just had a, had a thought about as you were talking. He, this uh, Bartimaeus, was um, may have been taken by his family to synagogue, mm -hmm. and he heard the Old Testament teachings, mm -hmm. and he understood them. And then he realized when Jesus was coming, who Jesus was, yeah. and therefore recognized the Messiah. And then. Mm -hmm. uh, when Jesus healed him, then spiritually and physically, mm -hmm. he accepted Christ as his savior. Mm -hmm. Then mm -hmm. that's right. I think that's that's probably a, a reasonable explanation of why 
he responded the way he responded, a son of David, have mercy on me. Yeah, no, I think that's that's right. That's good. That's good. Because the teaching of, and we talked about that before in this class, but the teaching about Messiah in the first century was very significant. The expectation was really high for the coming of the Messiah, as, as, uh, as we've talked. All right, then let's move into chapter 11. Now, chapter 11 is it's a very familiar part of Jesus' public ministry, but I think there are some little nuances and emphases that Mark gives that are not in the other Gospels. But this is the triumphal entry of Jesus in Jerusalem. Now, I want to remind you of something I said earlier. They, they, you enter, you, you come into, uh, you come into Judea, across the international highway at Jericho, which is again about five miles or so from the Jordan River from that highway, and then you make the long trek up. So, Jesus has now made that trek up to Jerusalem. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, again as I just explained, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives. Now you, you come in, they would be coming into Jerusalem from the southeast, excuse me, from the northeast, they're traveling southeast, but they're coming in. And so what they would do before they would get to Jerusalem, they would have to cross up that little range of mountains that become known as the Mount of Olives. And so do you understand what I'm saying? They're coming up from this way. Here's Jerusalem, here's Temple Mount. So they're coming up this way, as they're climbing the Mount of Olives, there's a little town, Bethphage and Bethany. They're very, very close together, but they're two separate towns. And so, as you already know, but Bethany is where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, that's where they live. But Mark is being very specific here. As they're coming uh, from Jerusalem, it's, it's southeast. They're moving in the direction of northeast. But anyway, the Bethphage, and then about two miles, not quite two miles, is Beth Bethany. Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, go into the village, probably Bethphage, but it could be Bethany, in front of you, because of where they are, Bethany would be the closest one. And immediately as you enter, it will be to find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord is need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Now, very specific instructions, uh, very clear what God, want, what Jesus wants them to do. And they went away, found a colt at the door outside in the street, and untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Now, this is, a, this is not a full-grown donkey. This is a colt. This is a small animal which, one, would not have been used to being ridden, and two, would not necessarily be comfortable being away from its mother. So there's just some things to think about here as we, as we go into this. And then Jesus, in the next verse, says, and they brought the cloak to Jesus through it, and he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Some translation or some of the accounts, Matthew particularly, stresses their palm branches, but they don't necessarily can only be palm branches, because it says they're getting them from the fields and around this area. There would have been fields, and so what I want you to observe here, what I want you to observe here in in, in verse nine, is that there are two groups of people. 
there's a group that goes before Jesus, and then there's a group that follows Jesus. Now, again, and, and we, we think we're pretty accurate here. These are pilgrims from all parts of Galilee and Judea making the way to Jerusalem for the festival, for Passover and all that's associated with that. And so whether they are all traveling with Jesus at this point is problematic, probably not. But there's a very significant group of people before him because look at Mark's language. And those who went before and those who followed. So the group in front of Jesus and the group in back of Jesus, so both groups are crying, literally the word shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna is a very familiar term. It's probably in some of the hymns you sung. That's right, we don't use hymn books anymore, so you probably don't sing Hosanna anymore. But in the old hymns, Hosanna is a lot. Hosanna means praise God. Yah, Yah, Ho, that's Yah, praise God. Or it could mean Yahweh save us. Or it could mean Yahweh deliver us. So what are they claiming here? It's a word of praise, but it's also a petition. Hosanna, Yahweh save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let me stop there. This, this context of what's happening to Jesus is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. It's in Zechariah chapter 9, that you will know Messiah, you will know your king. He will come riding, come to you riding on the foal of a donkey. And so this is a very strategic prophetic moment, because what's happening here is Jesus is intentionally, he's intentionally and he certainly is aware of it, intentionally fulfilling a prediction about the coming of the Messiah. And what they're crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest, is one of the ascent psalms from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. So you have two significant Old Testament texts here. You have fulfilling of the Zechariah 9 passage, and uh, prophecy, and then you have the Ascent Psalm. There were a number of those, but Psalm 18 is perhaps the most well-known. An Ascent Psalm. This is what they would sing as they were going up to Jerusalem. And so these people, again, the crowd in front of him, the crowd back of him, they're all saying this. Now, what, what you and I need to unpack, and what you and I need to think about is, what are they really saying here? What, what are they really exclaiming? Are they recognizing Jesus as the son of David, as the Messiah? Are they recognizing him as their king? Well, at, at the base level, is we don't really know, because I hardly know the heart of everybody there, but this is extraordinary. This is... Uh, this is one of these staggering events, because this would have been a significant group of people. This isn't just a, oh, a dozen or so. At, 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 at the least, both the group in front of me were in the hundreds, maybe even in a couple of thousand, although I, I don't know any of that for sure. 
But Mark is very specific. Remember, Peter is Mark's main source. So Peter would have no doubt been very specific in sharing what it is. A group ahead, there's a group in back, and they're all saying the same thing. Yahweh save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. I just think of that. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That is pure messianic, pure kingdom language. Because this is the kingdom of God come to earth. And at least for some of them, I believe it would be legitimate to say he's our king. So, I mean, this is really, this is remarkable. This is one of those, oh, this would have really been neat to see this. But perhaps some of the very people who were saying that in a few days, few hours, really, but a few days at the end of, of the next week, seven days later, are going to be crying, crucify him. So this is just, it's an awesome event. This is all Mark is going to say about it. He doesn't say anything else. Matthew tells us a little bit more detail as, as does as does Luke. But at, 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 the, at the very base level, messianic fervor is high here. These are people that have a sense of expectation, a sense of anticipation, and the language that they're using as they are with Jesus heading up to Temple Mount is just overflowing with prophetic messianic praise stuff out of the Old Testament. Very significant event, emotionally high for people that are there. I wonder how, yeah. knowing Jesus and knowing his rabbi, how they thought this was going to turn into a military victory over mm. the world. Mm. So, for some, yeah. You know, I, I mean, I don't see how they you know, expect that to happen. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, and that's, I, I, Bill, that's a question I, I just can't answer. That That is part of that expectation that for many, he's our military hero, and he's going he's gonna to get rid of Rome for us. <laughs> and yet, you know, he never gave any evidence of any right. military or even leading a, a revolt or insurrection. Uh, he's, he, and it's not been his message, and, and we know why, because in his first advent, he has to go to the cross. So you have this, this astonishing, electrifying moment where would you expect Jesus to go once he enters Jerusalem? The temple. Starbucks. Yeah, Starbucks. That's where I'd go. This is the temple. That you would expect him to do that. And so the crowds that are following him uh, now, or, or whatever now as they move, because Jerusalem would have been thronging with people, very, very crowded. And Jerusalem went to the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now let's work our way backwards. With the 12, he goes, so he, he will go out of the temple, go down the Kidron Valley and go to Beth, Bethany, which is just over the mountain, over the hill, not very far at all. If you're on the Mount of Olives, you just walk down right there to Bethany. So we're working our way back. Why did he, why does Mark say it's already late? It's getting close to the point where the guard shut the gates to the city. So Mark is saying, this is the end of the day, and already shut the gates, so Jesus leaves. It's late, and he heads for Bethany. We're working our way backward. What is really important is that phrase, looked around at everything. Now, this is late in the day. 
So Jesus has entered the temple complex. And remember, the temple complex is acres and acres in size. And so he enters the temple complex, and the text says he looked around. Here is the image that Mark wants us to have. Here's Jesus, Savior of the world, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the King, Jesus the Lord, gazing at, checking out the religious center of his, of his people. He's, this is, this is a, it's like the, the, the language is kind of an image in your mind. It said, here's Jesus doing a panoramic look at the temple complex. He's looking at everything and he leaves. What he saw is what leads him to his action the next morning in verse 15. Because what Jesus sees does not please him. What Jesus sees, instead of people genuinely worshiping, he sees a marketplace. He sees things going on that should not be going on. Nothing immoral, I don't mean that. But the temple complex has been turned not into a worship center, but a marketplace where people are making money. Instead of praying, instead of going through all that God wants them to do, it's exactly the opposite. So Mark is the only one who tells us this. He's the only one who explains this to us. That as they entered Jerusalem in the latter part of the afternoon, as we're getting close to when they shut the gates to the city, and Jesus, he, gates were shut, he couldn't have left. He'd had to spend the night in Jerusalem. But before he does that, he looks... He's in the temple complex now, and he just looks around, and it's this panoramic evaluation. What am I seeing? So he goes back to Bethany, and then it's the next day. Verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now let me stop there for a minute. There are a couple of things that I want to talk about here. When it says, again, when he enters the temple, that does not mean the temple, that he's in the holy place. He is in the temple complex, which is a massive, massive thing. Today, it's 39 acres. Then it would not have been quite as large, but it went close to that. And it, it had various courts. And in the outer courts, what had happened um, the, for pilgrims who traveled, and most of the people who come with Jesus were pilgrims who are coming from Galilee, they didn't bring their own animals for the sacrifice. That, that's, that would have been arduous. It, many of the animals wouldn't survive. So they, they come with the intent of purchasing animals to be sacrificed. And secondly, and this sounds crazy for you and me, but, but secondly, they'd have to change their money because on Temple Mount, they only accepted Jewish coins. And so there, there, were three, there were three types of coins that people carried. Isn't this crazy? But this is true. They would have carried Roman coins that were minted by the empire. And that, this was true up until you get into the 400s. Every coin had the image of the reigning Caesar on it. And so that's one. So if you came from Galilee, well, you may have had some Roman coins. Then there were Greek coins, coins that were associated with the various Greek provinces, Greek-speaking provinces. 
and then you had the Jewish coins. And only on Temple Mount could you use Jewish money. So somewhere you had to change your money. You know, if you ever traveled internationally, you, you get off the plane, you all you have is dollars. I'm probably going to need some pounds or I need some francs, whatever it is you're doing, some euros or whatever it is, and so you go and you get to change some of it. But you know, every time you change money internationally, the guy who's changing for you takes a little cut, takes a little percentage, and that's okay because that's how they make the money. And it, it is they have to go and exchange it, and there's a charge there. And banks, when they change its credit, their fees are horrible. So. The high priest, the high priest changed in AD 615 from Annas to Caiaphas. Annas is the father-in-law, Caiaphas is the son-in-law. And Annas is still the big wig in back of all this, but he was forced out by the empire. Caiaphas is now the high priest. And he came up with an idea. You know, we're losing a lot of money on all this. Because the people would go to the Mount of Olives and there were shops and stuff set up on the animal. That's where they'd buy their animals. That's where they'd change the money. Caiaphas said, we're going to bring those operations into the temple complex. And when all of this occurs, we're going to take a cut of it. So every time an animal is sought, we're selling the animals. Every time people change the Roman coins or the provincial coins into Jewish money, we're going to take a cut of that. You have to understand that because this is what's upsetting Jesus, not the buying of animals, not the exchanging of money. It's, it's in the outer court of the Gentiles, of the temple complex, which was a massive open space. So the image we should have is you walk into the temple complex, you look at the court of the Gentiles, and all you see are the tables filled with various animals to be purchased for the sacrifices, and then presumably other tables, not necessarily right next to them, but other tables where you would change your money. This, as Jesus gave that panoramic view the late afternoon of the previous day, this is what he saw in the court of the Gentiles. The language that the Lord's going to use in a minute, this enraged him. So this is what he sees, and he turns these tables over. Now, men, in John's gospel, it tells us he had a whip. I mean, just try to picture this. Here's Jesus, and I, you know, I don't know if all the people knew who he was. Some would have obviously did, and others, who is this guy? But he is literally turning over these tables, and it's not going to be one or two tables. This is maybe a couple dozen tables, and he's overturning them. And this would have been, this would have been something that, you know, somebody had their phone, they're going to be taping this. Then it'll be on YouTube, it'll be on CNN, it'll be on Fox. Everybody's going to be showing it. Today in Jerusalem, an extraordinary act occurred. Somebody upset all the tables, you know. And it was just, it was unbelievable. It would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And as he was teaching them, so the language that Mark's using, again, he's depending more than likely on Peter for the source of this. As he does all this, the enemy begins to teach. Just teach him a moment. I'm going to explain what I'm doing. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Isaiah 56, 7, and Jeremiah 7, 11. Christ is combining two. This is what my temple is for. My house. And this is spoken about Yahweh, those Old Testament texts on Isaiah and Jeremiah, but Jesus 
my house. This is my house. To be a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. Again, he's combining in that those two statements, Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11. You have taken what is to be a worship center for the Gentiles. That's why he says for all the nations. This is all set up in the court of the Gentiles, this massive, very wide-open court on the Temple Mount complex. You've turned it into a den of robbers. Now, what they were doing wasn't sinful. Selling animals because that's legitimate, and exchanging them when that's legitimate, that's where they were doing it. Caiaphas had moved it from the, uh, from the Mount of Olives, where there were shops and stuff, to the temple complex to take a cut. This is what enrages Jesus. So the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. That's a very interesting statement, for they feared him. Now, what are they really afraid? Are they afraid of him? Are they afraid of him because he's popular? And if they would take action against him, they would lose the support of the people. It's probably a combination of those things. But they hate him. He has got to go, but we can't move on it. We can't do anything about it. He's too popular. When the evening came, they went out of the city. And so you have this extraordinary event, which is just almost an unimaginable event to have witnessed and to seen Jesus cleansing the temple complex, further solidifying in the mind of the, of the Pharisees and the scribes and the spiritual leadership, this guy's got to go. All right, are there any, um, I added some details there and gave you a little bit of a historical background. Any questions about the uh, cursing, the cleansing of the temple, excuse me? That very familiar, everybody knows the story, even unbelievers know the story, but the details of it I think are much more important to understand. I have a question, uh, Dr. Ackman, John Nelson. Okay, okay, John, go ahead. Can you hear me? I can, yes. Yeah, okay. Um, there were two or three courtyards, and the money changes were in the outer courtyard. Is that correct? Yes, in the larger uh, court of the outer outer part of the court of the Gentiles. It's a very large open space. But but Jesus objected to them being anywhere there in the courtyards. Um, he thought they should be outside the courtyard area altogether. That, that, that is that is correct, John. The yeah. When Caiaphas moved those, those operations into the Temple Mount complex, they really were violating those two passages that Jesus quoted from. They really were. They, those things were legitimate things that needed to be there. They needed to have opportunities for people to buy the animals to sacrifice, particularly the pilgrims and so on. But it's where they were doing it. And they were doing it in the temple, in the temple complex. And that's an offense to God. You're turning what is supposed to be sacred and holy into that which is 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 just the opposite. In the words of Jeremiah from Jeremiah 7:11, a, a den of robbers. Strong language Jesus is using. Does Thank that make you. sense? Yeah. Okay, Fred. Um, did you uh, miss the fig tree? We're going to do that right now. It's okay. in verse 20. We're going to do that right now. Anything else about the? either the triumphal entry or the cleansing of the temple. All right. 
Now, verse 20, um, uh, we're in um, chapter 11 now. In verse 20 of chapter 11, this is now Tuesday morning. As they pass by in the morning, this is now Tuesday morning, they saw the fig tree. Oops. I'm sorry. That was another part that I didn't read. Um, it's because my pages are out of order. That's the reason. Following you with the notes and the Bible, it didn't see that you missed anything. As they passed, they saw the fig tree with it as roots. What, what did I skip here? On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Oh, yes. Yeah, I skipped that whole thing. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Um, uh, yes, because I was going to go right to the... I skipped from Jesus surveying the temple to going to the temple. I forgot what happened. On the following day, um, uh, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Now, pardon me. Are you all with me now? I'm going back. I, for some reason, I don't know why I skipped that. He was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And, and the disciples heard it. Now, um, this, um, this event of Jesus looking at a fig tree, this is a date fig tree. These are date figs, which are, if you've ever been to the Middle East, you want to buy a pack of those and eat them. They are by far, what you buy in the United States, it doesn't compare at all to these. They're fantastic. And so Jesus is going to this fig tree throughout the Old Testament. A fig tree is used as a symbol of Israel. There is, a, there is symbolism here, and you and I read something like this, and we just have no idea what in the world is going on. What is it? Why would Jesus curse a fig tree? It's an object lesson. If you see a fig tree, and it only has leaves on it, it's worthless. If there's no fruit on this fig tree, it's worthless. So if symbolically the fruit tree is a metaphor for Israel, what is Jesus seeing? All show and no go. All show and no go. No fruit. And so I believe because of what happens, which is what I started with, forgetting I hadn't read this, when, when the disciples then come the next day, this was Monday, they come the next day, Tuesday, and they see the tree's dead. They remember what happened. And so this will start to come together as we get closer to the end of Jesus' life, because he's going to talk about the fig tree again. So this is a metaphor. It's a symbolic representation of Israel. I don't think the disciples understood this at all. The disciples heard it. Mark tells us. But I doubt very much if they understood what's going on. I doubt very much if they're making this about, they may have, but I'm not sure they did. Later on, they're going to really get it. So for you and me, 
This is, a, this is an object lesson. It's a, it's a metaphorical statement. I should expect to see fruit, fruit from my people. Israel is my flock. Israel is my fruit. Israel is my people. I mean, all of the things that are said about Israel. So Jesus is showing up. He is presenting himself as a Messiah. And is he getting people to respond in faith, embracing him? No. It's just the opposite. And so when Christ is not seeing the fruit of his fig tree, so he curses it. Now, what that is eventually going to mean, and what that's eventually going to, 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 to really need explaining is, Israel is going to be judged. It's going to be disciplined. It's going to be dispersed throughout the world. And only at the end will God start bringing them back to their land, and they'll again start to bear fruit, spiritual fruit. But this is a barren nation spiritually. And so all that figurative language is coming together. And they passed, um, now let me go to what I started a moment, and Fred reminded me what I forgot to read, but as they passed by in the morning, this would be the next day, this would be Tuesday, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Mark is being very explicit there. This thing is completely withered, completely dried up. And Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them. Such an unexpected response. He doesn't unpack the metaphor. He doesn't explain the symbolism. Jesus uses this as a teachable moment about faith and about forgiveness. But in doing that, what is he focusing on? These are the two things I see missing among my people. These are the two, th two things that I should expect to see, but I'm not seeing. Faith and a forgiving prayerful spirit. So Jesus answered, have faith in God. What am I not seeing on the fig tree representing Israel? Faith and trust in me. So have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I say, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. Faithful, confident, trusting, that's going to be reflected in your prayer life. It's going to be reflected in your ongoing communication with the Heavenly Father. I don't see that. I don't see that in my people. So, Peter, yeah, the fig tree's withered. Because the fruit of my people I do not see. And secondly, in verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, ask that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. A forgiving spirit. This is, the, this is the forgiveness of family. This is the relational forgiveness. This isn't the judicial forgiveness of God. This is your relationship. So Jesus, it's really, it, 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 you really understand what he's doing 
as he often, he doesn't answer the question directly. He says, but you know, what I'm really doing here, Peter, is this is the fruit I'd like to see, but I'm not seeing it. Faith and confident trust in the Lord, that's reflected in your prayers, which is confident trust. I believe that God can answer my prayers. Okay, what kind of faith? The faith that can tell this mountain to go into the sea. That's hyperbole. Hyperbole is exaggerated language. That's hyperbole. But Jesus is trying to drive the home. You know, faithful, confident, trusting prayer will do amazing things. I don't see that among my people. And instead of a forgiving spirit in relation, I see exactly the opposite. Bitter, grudge-filled, vengeful, instead of forgiving because these people are praying. They go to the temple complex to pray, and Jesus is saying, it's not the right spirit. And so it's, it's an extraordinary statement from the mouth of Jesus that dovetails with and helps us try to unpack in our understanding of what this fig tree really represented and what the cursing of the fig tree really represents. Because the children of Israel will be disciplined again, a severe discipline. They were sent all through the earth, a great diaspora after, after the death of Jesus, and then all that happens through the Jewish revolt and all that stuff and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And so this is all coming together now. And so what moves next, what time is it? Okay, what moves next is Jesus is now going to be challenged. Okay, now let me stop. The fig tree, the initial cursing, and then what the discussion between the dialogue between Jesus and Peter and what Jesus said. Everybody with me? Any questions or anything you want to ask about? Once you get this symbolic meaning of the fig tree, then it all seems to me falls into place. But this is, uh, this is extraordinary. The fruit that Jesus expects to see and he doesn't see it. All right, verse 27, and I think we can do this before we, we get to 12, which we'll do next, start next week. Um, and they came again to Jerusalem. We are assuming this is still Tuesday of Holy Week. It, it seems reasonable to conclude that. He was walking in the temple. The chief priests and scribes and elders came to him. Now, there's all the, the key groups, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. The elders are the civil leaders, Jewish civil leaders of the society. The priests and scribes, of course, the priests, you know, chief priests are the guys who do the sacrifice, and the scribes are the, most of them are Pharisees. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? So they ask him two questions. What authority do you have to do these things? Presumably, what we have just read about. His triumphant in Jerusalem, and then what happened on the Temple Mount, overturning the uh, tables and all that stuff. And then possibly, possibly even the stuff about the fig tree. But more than likely, the primary focus is on what he did on Temple Mount when he entered Jerusalem. So by what authority are you doing this? And then secondly, who gave you that authority? Because in a very real sense, they understand you must be claiming to have authority from God to do what you're doing. So we've got to confront you. By what authority do you have this? 
Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, let me interject something here. This is a typical rabbinic teaching technique. Your student asks you a question, you ask them a question back, either for clarification or you want to make sure they really understand the depths of what you're asking them, what the student is asking the rabbi. So the rabbi says, I'll answer your question, but you've got to answer a question for me first. So Jesus is using a very typical rabbinic technique here. And this wouldn't have shocked them because they would have been used to this. <clears throat> Here's his question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Isn't that a great question? Because these guys are trying to figure out who is this guy, Jesus, and, and we are starting to understand he's really claiming to be the Messiah, which we think is ridiculous and stupid. And so we want to find out. And, and Jesus comes back and says, okay, John the Baptist, you're familiar with him. You know about his ministry. You know all he did. Oh, yeah, sure we do. Yeah, yeah. Okay, here's my question. Does his authority come from heaven? i.e. God, or for man, human, made up. And they discussed it with one another. And the language of Mark here seems to be, we'll get back to you on this in just a minute. So they go off onto a corner and they start talking with one another. That's the way the language of this is. We'll get back to you. Hold on. We'll get back. And this is what they're saying. Um, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, then why did you not believe in it? But if we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. You think Jesus knew this would stump them? He's omniscient. He knew exactly what to say. And he is in effect saying, you already know the answer to this question. Your hard-heartedness prevents you from acknowledging the answer you already know. So the answer, Jesus, we do not know. <laughs> what is that illustrating? What Jesus had just said about the fig tree. Mark accentuates this because this illustrates the very point Jesus is making when he responded to Peter. Faith, forgiving spirit. The scribes, the Pharisaic leaders who taught the law, the chief priests who administered the sacrifices, and the elders, the political civic leaders, none of the, none of the leadership has faith. They are rejecting me and they are they're contriving these questions to trip me up. Instead of faith, it's rejection, it's, it's vitriol, and it's hatred of me. And so Christ responds masterfully in control of the situation, illustrating the very point he had made. They lack the fruit I should see. If anyone should be embracing me, it's these guys but they're not. 
And so I'm so thankful we could get through all of this as a unit because this all tightly fits together in what, what is going on on this Tuesday of Passion Week. And you see the problem. The problem is the people of Israel, at least at this point in the leadership, but it'll be broadened in a little bit, are utterly, totally rejecting Jesus despite the evidence. And that's why Jesus cursed the fig tree. Israel is under condemnation because they've not responded in faith to the obvious message of going. All right, you got it? One of the guys said yes here, and I saw one guy shaking his head, so the rest of you playing statues, I'm assuming you got it. Just trying to find the mute button. We're good. Oh, good. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right. Well, good. Any any questions? Seriously? No, appreciate the background. I'm going to... If there aren't any, then I'm going to pray here and let you go. And uh, <clears throat> we'll, uh, we'll see you next week. All right? Join me here as we pray. Father, thank you for our study in the ongoing study in the Gospel of Mark. This, I'm so thankful we could get this whole unit together done in, in this one session because it sits, so fits together. And we are grateful for our time to study. Lord, I would pray that we would be men of faith, men with a forgiving spirit, not the bitter, bitter vengeful spirit that Jesus talked about here. Help us to be the <clears throat> strong men of God that you're calling us to be. Help each one of these men in all the areas and aspects of their lives. Uh, they, everything is under your stewardship, under your authority, and everything they do is to be done to the glory of God, as 1 Corinthians 10.31 states. So as we go our separate ways, we ask you to bless, take care of us, watch over us, and may we be the instruments that you call us to be. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen.